excited about being here tonight. Uh, welcome to Vision Deeper on our new series for 2008. And um, I'm excited to be kicking it off tonight. And I'm looking forward to the year ahead, because I think this is a fantastic topic, but then I would. Um, I want to explain to you, first of all, what this uh, On Tim's Trail means, okay? You've probably all been wondering, um, who is Tim? Well, Tim is Paul Paul's friend, Timothy. You know, the guy that Paul writes to in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. And uh, the, kind of, the, the kind of theme is based on this verse in 2 Timothy, where Paul says to Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. So um, that's what we're going to be thinking about, the implications of this uh, throughout the series, okay? And it kind of fits in with our um, uh, verse for the year, which by now should be etched on the back of your eyelids, okay? Go and tell how much the Lord has done for you. So, so I'm going to try and set the scene a bit for the whole series uh, tonight, and I'm going to try and introduce some new concepts to some of us. Um, so hang in there. Some of the things I'm going to talk about tonight um, are quite kind of mind-stretching. I'm really sorry. Um, and I must warn you that although the hand, you've got handouts, not everything I'm going to say is on the handouts. That's not all I'm saying. There's a lot more, okay? So um, going back to Paul and Timothy, these are amongst Paul's last words to Timothy. Um, Paul had left Timothy in Ephesus to pastor the church. And he writes to encourage him in that job. I don't, we often think of Timothy as timid, don't we? Um, he couldn't have been that timid because he was pastoring a church and confronting false teaching. Um, but he was basically a pastor and not an evangelist. Okay? He was pastoring the church. So that's kind of where we're coming from, what we're thinking about. What does Paul mean by the work of an evangelist. Well, I think partly he's referring to the role of the evangelist that he talks about in Ephesians chapter 4. And it says, It was he, Jesus, who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers, to prepare God's people for works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up. That's Ephesians 4, 11 to 13. Like Paul's saying that there's a role of evangelists needed by the church to build up the church to do evangelism, to, to, to prepare God's people to do the work of evangelism. And we're going to come back to that idea a bit later on. And, and what does this mean for us then? So here's Timothy, a non-evangelist, being called to do the work of an evangelist. It kind of implies it's important. Uh, it's not something that we can say, oh, well, you know, God, I haven't got that gift, so uh, in this area I don't need to do anything at all. It's, it's a bit different to some other gifts that God might give us. You know, um, God doesn't say, do the work of a singer if you clearly aren't one, okay? Um, but we're kind of all called to do this work in a different way. Call it being a witness if it makes you feel more comfortable, Okay but we're all accountable to God. So let's think a little bit about this gift of evangelism thing. All right? There's some talk, okay? And some people think that, they, that between 7 and 10% of Christians have this gift of evangelism. Um, whatever you think about that, you'll be aware that some people, this area is much easier, okay? seems much easier. Uh, it's much more natural than... Uh, the rest of us. So how would you recognize this kind of gift in yourself or somebody else? Well, the first thing you might no notice is this stuff, passion. Okay? Natural evangelists seem to have a passion in them. Okay? It's the only thing they want to talk about. They don't care how the chairs are set out or where the fire extinguishers are. They just want to know and talk about Jesus to other people. Sometimes that passion can get uncomfortable for people around them and for them themselves, okay? Especially if the gift's kind of uh, suppressed or frustrated in some way. Um, I kind of know what that feels like, I think. Sometimes this passion 
this kind of love for lost people becomes a really heavy burden for evangelists. And, um, you know, they get, evangelists get really upset and, and feel strongly for people who are lost. And sometimes the frustration with people who aren't evangelists kind of bursts out, okay? Uh, and please forgive me if I ever get cross with you, because this is where that comes from, okay? Um, <clears throat> people with this gift sometimes have something we might call a radar. So um, they would walk into a room with people, and they would look at the people and be immediately aware about, or thinking about, the people in the room. Do they know Jesus? Where are they in their journey with God? How can I tell them about Jesus? Okay, They're kind of like on high alert all the time about people and people being spiritually open. I wonder if any of you know what I'm talking about yet. Um, I'm sure there are a few of you. <laughs> not looking at anybody. <clears throat> but I'm sure that a few of you know what I'm talking about already. And some of you are just thinking, what is she on about? She's lost the plot. Okay. The other thing is that People with this gift will talk more naturally about their faith. It just becomes easier, okay? Um, and they'll, be, they'll find themselves in social situations, being able to kind of disengage from Christian company and, and are on the lookout for people who don't know God and want to go and join in and talk to them about Jesus, okay? Now, it's true that this gift is expressed in different ways. No two evangelists are going to be exactly the same, just like no two pastors are exactly the same. So this gift is expressed in different ways, okay? And there's not just one way to do it. And it's not just about preaching. And I'm really pleased about this. Um, and we're going to discuss this a bit later on, okay? So if that's kind of a bit like what it, what it looks like to have this gift... What about the non-evangelists? Well, um, to the 90 to 95% of people who haven't got this, well, we're all, we're all called to do the work, as we've been talking about, um, but it'll feel more like work. It'll feel much more like work. It won't come so easy. It doesn't seem to flow. Uh, it's more of a concentrated effort involved to do this. Okay. We're all called to be witnesses. No one's off the hook. Okay? Just because it's not natural and it isn't easy doesn't mean we don't do it. Okay? We just have to learn to do it better. We have to work at it. Okay? If this is you, then this series is for you. Really, it's for you. Okay? The aim of the kind of the whole series is about learning to work at this and maybe do it a bit better and encourage each other. So, why bother? Why should we bother with all this evangelism stuff, okay? Now, the next few slides are not in your handouts, I'm sorry, okay? But I'm going to kind of whiz through them. Why? Because God commands us, okay? The Great Commission. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Okay? And we're going to look at that verse again later on. But it says it all, really, doesn't it? And, of course, the greatest commandment. Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbour as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. What's that got to do with why we must evangelise? Well, can you see, loving God and loving people are linked. Okay, you can't say we love God and not love people, it just doesn't hang together. So if we love people, and he doesn't just mean our Christian friends we will be concerned to tell them about him. Now I'm going to whiz through the next few, okay, about why we should be bothered. So there's quite a few. Here we go. He calls us to continue Christ's mission. Jesus' primary mission was to seek and save the lost, wasn't it? So we're called to become like him, so we are to continue his mission. 
God chose to work through us. He's committed to us the method of reconciliation. There's some really tricky verses in Ezekiel here. I won't read them out. I would suggest that maybe you jot down the reference and have a look at it on your own. Okay, and ask the question, who will God hold you accountable for? God counts people lost. Do we believe people are lost? God does, doesn't he? Do we believe Jesus is the only way? Well, he said he was. Do we believe in the reality of hell? Jesus talked about it. Do we believe Jesus' promise that the truth will set you free? Do we believe it for ourselves and do we believe it for our friends? If we do, the gospel is good news. God cries for the lost. This is the story of uh, the prodigal son. It's a a picture of God's heart for the lost. He looks out for his son. He runs with open arms to his son. And of course, it was Jesus' love that led him to the cross, wasn't it? So how do you think he wants us to feel about the lost? Surely he wants us to feel kind of the same way he does. And to be really bothered. God calls us for his purpose. We're made to serve and glorify him. Uh, This verse says, We constantly pray for you, that our God may count you worthy of his calling, and that by his power he may fulfill every good purpose of yours and every act prompted by your faith. We pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him. Okay, Glorifying him means making him known, doesn't it? If we love him, we want to be standing up for him, won't we? Okay, this is the last one. God's coming is withheld. Jesus said that the gospel would be preached in the whole world and then the end would come. It's not like we should be all preoccupied with the end stuff, but we've got this job to do, okay? So in Acts chapter 1, uh, he said, It's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. It's like we've got this job to get on with, okay? And doing that job speeds his return. You all right? Okay, back to the sheets now. Um, so, okay, we thought about who should do it, everybody, uh, why we should do it, and now we want to think about more about how we should do it. And, and uh, we just need to kind of lay some foundations about our thinking about this, um, and it starts with this. The challenge of culture, okay? Now hang in there, everybody. (laughs) Culture affects us more than we realise. Another word for culture, another way of looking at it, is is a worldview, okay? It's kind of the way we see things. It's the way we think and interpret what's going on, okay, around us. Everybody has got a worldview, even if you're not aware that you've got it, everybody. I mean, people don't go around saying, my worldview is this, my worldview is that. I mean, most people don't have any idea, but they have one, okay? The other thing is that Western culture is in a process of major change. You may or may not be aware of this. For the past 400 years, okay, Western culture has had a modern worldview. Modern, I don't mean up-to-date, it's a, it's a special term, okay? And I'll explain that a bit more in a moment. At the moment, it seems like we're in this in-between stage, um, moving from a modern culture towards something called a postmodern culture. And I'll explain that again in a minute as well. Now, um, I know some of these ideas might be new, so just kind of hang in there. And, and I'm just doing this because I want us to look at how culture affects how we share our message, okay? The other thing is, 
Church has a culture, and that culture is alien to those outside. Okay, we may, may not be aware of this. Um, we're, we're kind of countercultural in lots of ways, aren't we? So if somebody from out there, from, a, from the culture out there, comes into our church, they're going to be culture shocked. Okay, they're going to be so kind of they just don't know what's going on. All right, it's like landing in the foreign country for some people. Okay. So we need to engage with secular culture, all right, in order to be relevant and understood. There's a big word for this. It's called contextualizing, okay? Um, it just means that we tell our message, it's the same message, we just tell it in a way that people can understand. Okay, and it's our job to do that. All right, we can't expect people to change their culture in order to come and hear the gospel. We have to break down those barriers for them. You know, if we send a missionary overseas, okay, they spend a lot of their training thinking about culture and language, don't they? Okay? They spend time learning about how to tell the message where they're going. I think we have to realise that we are actually in a missionary situation right here, okay? In this culture. And um, we have to do the same, don't we? We have to um, say, you know, share our message in a way that our culture can understand. Okay, right. Now, I want to just spend a few minutes giving you a bit of a, an idea about what I mean, what I've been talking about, modernity and post-modernity. Um, this is a really big topic, okay? And I can only really give you a bit of a flavour but if you're really interested, I've got some great books that are really hard to read that I could, you know, let you have. <laughs> okay? Guaranteed to send you to sleep. Anyway, so modernity now, okay? We're talking about the dominant Western culture for the last 400 years. And I, I want to just explain to you what are the kind of key features of it. Okay? This is idea, okay, that we can understand everything through reason, okay? It says that we need to apply reason, logic, and science to everything, okay? Now, this might seem obvious to us, but that's because we've been brought up and educated in a modern culture, okay? There's a bit of a problem with this, saying that everything can be understood through logic and reason, okay? And there was this guy, this philosopher called Kant, who realised this. So he had an idea, and he, he made this up. This is all kind of made up, by the way. He made this up, this thing called the subjective-objective split, all right? He said something like this. The kind of material world, you know, we can understand through reason and uh, logic, and that kind of inhabits the objective world. We can be obje objective about it. We can understand it through science. But stuff like religion, okay, and ethics, well, that's more subjective, okay? Subjective, objective split. Um, he was kind of trying, trying to protect religion, but actually what happened was that over time, the kind of um, objective material stuff has become the important stuff. Okay, and the objective stuff, no, subjective stuff, religion and, has been kind of put into the realm of opinion. So what that means is that um, it becomes private. So people will say to you, oh yeah, but what you believe is kind of private. So it's become less important in our culture. Okay? So, so there's been this move towards thinking that you know, the universe is essentially kind of material and we can understand it through science. Okay, so we, we will interpret events that happen to us through this kind of view. So, if we crash the car, we say, why did we crash the car? Was I going too fast? Okay, now that seems obvious, doesn't it? You know, who wouldn't say that? Well, it's because of your worldview that you'd say that, all right? In medieval times, if you crashed your cart they would say, oh, I wonder what the purpose behind that is. What's God trying to tell me? So they have a different view of things, okay? Um, and because we've moved in the modern culture towards 
kind of the material way of thinking about things, it's kind of almost like removed any idea of there being a bigger moral purpose behind the universe, okay? So it's kind of mm, disempowered God in a way, all right? Don't worry, we're getting there now. <laughs> There's this idea, okay, that, 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 um, that hard facts, okay, hard material facts you can, you can uh, explain through science, can be taught and understood with no value attached to them. So there was this idea, that, it was a ridiculous idea, that the best people to teach religion were people who didn't have religious belief. Okay? That was actually ridiculous, isn't it? Anyway, they don't do that anymore, but there was this kind of movement that, you know, because facts are value-free, you could do that. And then the other thing about modernity is this idea that, um, you know, the more understanding, the more teaching you have, you know, it, inevitably it moves towards progress, this idea of utopia. You know, if we, we're more educated, we'll reach utopia. The more educated you are, you know, education is the answer to everything. It gives you health, wealth, and all that kind of stuff. Well, I think that's been found wanting, hasn't it, really? It doesn't seem to make much sense. The other thing is that in modernity, the rights of the individual have been really elevated, okay, above any kind of form of responsibility. Um, yeah, so it's, it's this kind of idea, it's all about me, it's about my, my rights as an individual. There you go, so that's modernity in a nutshell, okay? Cool, you're all looking glazed now, sorry. <laughs> Told you it was going to be hard. <laughs> okay, so that's kind of modernity, all right? The last 400 years, this is what Western culture has been, the kind of um, secular worldview, all right? What's this thing called post-modernity then? Well, firstly, there's a lot of debate about this, and the word is used in lots of different ways, okay? Um, but it's, I'll just, the key features of it, all right? <laughs> the dominance of relativity. Do you remember that objective-subjective split thing I was talking about? So, the, you know, subjective stuff, opinion was seen as um, only having relative value. Do you know what I mean? Um, well, postmodernity kind of says, well, everything's relative. So, um, how I see things as an individual affects what's true. Okay? Actually, there's no truth, only what I see as true. Okay, you're all looking stunned. I came across this when I was at university. I lived with an English student, and she was telling me that, um, she, was, she was telling me this idea, and this is kind of grown up from kind of the arts, that when you read a book, okay, the only meaning that the book has is what you interpret it as, as the reader. Okay? It doesn't matter what the author intended. Okay, that's got no value at all. It's what you as a reader interpret it as. Oh, I couldn't get my head around that at all, being a scientist. So, well, that's ridiculous. Um, but that's the kind of idea that it's you as an individual interpreting the world around you that, that makes the truth. Okay? So with this is this a kind of end of meaning. There's no truth. Okay? There's no meaning in the universe. Uh, it's about individuals finding meaning for themselves, okay? It's all about me, and it's all about now, because actually there is no meaning. Okay, oh, meta-narratives. Oh. Uh, well, because there's no meaning and no value in the world, well, there's no point looking for a story, is there, to kind of explain everything. That's what a meta-narrative is. There's no point in trying to understand the world at all, actually, so, as Christians, we've got something called a meta-narrative, which means the way we interpret the world is through how we understand God's story. Well, actually, postmodernity says there's no point in that, because there is no meaning. Okay? And, and history has no value either. There's no point looking back, because it doesn't mean anything. And there's no point looking forward, because it doesn't mean anything. So, you know, just live for the moment. I'm feeling a bit depressed now. <laughs> now, I know you're probably thinking, what on earth is she on about? Where am I? <laughs> well, I kind of expect you to feel confused, okay, about this, because everybody's confused about this. Um, as I said, Western culture is in this process of change, okay? And it's kind of like we're in between these worldviews, all right? 
and uh, kind of my generation is a real mixed up bag of all of this kind of stuff, okay? People don't say to you, oh yes, I've got a postmodern worldview and would say all these big fancy words. They wouldn't. But some of the things that they say to you might just show you what, where they, where, what they've been taught, what they believe, okay? And it's kind of been drip-fed to us through the media, particularly this postmodern view, you know, about truth is only relative and whatever you want to do kind of thing. So for those of us over 55, okay, or so, modernity is the kind of, the way you've been brought up and you're kind of, you know, the way you've been educated probably, okay? For those kind of, you know, 45 and under, there's, there's more post-modernity coming in. But for kind of the under-25s, post-modernity is kind of the way they're thinking, all right? And I want to illustrate this with a story, or a couple of stories, to try and help you. Yeah, right, Dave? <laughs> under-25. Last week, okay, I got into a conversation with a man who was aged 55, okay? I know his age, uh, and don't tell anybody, because this was at work and he was my patient. Anyway, he brought up the subject of me working part-time. He brought it up, so I just said, oh, I've got two jobs now. And he asked me about my other job, so I told him. I mean this, okay? His immediate response was to say, oh, let me take you down the pub for a beer and we'll have an argument about it. Okay? He wanted to argue with me about how illogical religion is, okay? So he is kind of operating from this modern worldview that says, you know, everything can be understood through logic and science, and that me, a Christian, I was committing, you know, um, intellectual suicide by believing something so ridiculous. By the way, I turned down his offer for a beer, um, but he did say he'd be back with a bad back next week to talk about it. <laughs> So we'll see. <laughs> now, contrast that with my friend in her 30s. And, and when I talk to her about God, she'll say something like, well, I can see that it helps you, Julie, and that it's true for you, but it's just not true for me. Okay? She's quite happy for me to believe whatever I want. She's not going to get in a, into a you know debate about logic with me about it. She just doesn't want me to expect her to believe the same thing, okay? Now, this doesn't strictly follow age, okay? So you'll find some kind of people who don't quite fit the categories, like my next-door neighbours, for instance, okay? He's 60, she's 55, and they are probably the people with the most postmodern worldview I have ever met, all right? She is into kind of healing, all right, and she has even thought up her own world of angels around her. We've had, you know, huge conversations about this. And this world of angels is based on nothing more than her own thoughts and experience of the world. He is into Buddhist theo um, theology, no, Buddhist philosophy, okay, but he's not saying that Buddhism is the way, it's just a way of looking at the world for him. Now, I have had... Uh, after listening to them for three years, I've started to have conversations about Jesus being the only way. Okay? But it's like hitting a brick wall. It's like we're on different planets. He, he keeps saying, oh yes, I can see that sounds wonderful for you, Julie, but it's just, you know, I see it this way. Okay? Now, what time is it? I think it would be a good idea. We've got some questions, all right, to try and help you get your heads around this a little bit. I know it's a difficult subject, okay? And I promise, once we've looked at these questions, it's going to get much easier, all right? So they should be on your sheet. Okay, and I just want you to talk about them uh, together briefly. Can you see any elements of these worldviews in your friends and family? How do you think the church needs to adapt its approach in view of our changing culture? Does it need to change? So what are the challenges and opportunities of modernity and post-modernity? <laughs> okay, I'll give you five minutes. <laughs> sort it out, will you? <laughs> Anybody wants to share? <laughs>
Yeah, so people with a postmodern worldview are kind of more interested in does it work, not is it true. So, start with does it work, yeah. but then at some point you have to move on yeah. so that it's true. So at some yeah. point you have to you challenge it. Postmodern yeah. view, which is fundamentally opposed to the Christian book. Yeah. Right? Yes, you start with does it work, and then you'd work towards the pushing them to the edge of their logic. Well, it's difficult, isn't it? But you kind of, that it, it just doesn't hold together. Yeah, good. <laughs> yeah, maybe we, we're more affected by our culture out there than we realise, don't we? And this kind of individualism is kind of, you know, affects us, doesn't it? You know, that it's about me and what I want and what's good for me. Well, that's, you know, we should be more countercultural than that, shouldn't we, actually? But, yeah. Okay, I, I tell me what, I'll just read you a little something out of this fascinating book. Um, to, to kind of illustrate the difficulties that this kind of change in culture um, has for us. Um, this is a story from the Valleys of South Wales, okay? Um, uh, a few years ago, I met a minister working on a large working-class estate in South Wales. The estate was one which had been erected after the Second World War in response to the very poor housing conditions in the town. Those who had moved into this state in the first decade were immensely proud of this achievement. Here at last was decent housing with indoor toilets, clean water, good schools, proper medical care and green open spaces. Here it was possible to build the new Jerusalem. Fifty years on, the cracks in the social experiment were, are very wide indeed. The children or grandchildren of those who first moved to this area are now unemployed often using drugs and sometimes involved in the kind of petty crime which supports drug use. The churches have not thrived in this setting. The minister that I talked with described the bridges that they are attempting to build with the community. In very general terms, they found the old generation shared the same ethical framework as the Christian community, but wanted little to do with the church and its message. In their thinking, you didn't have to go to church to be a good person. Indeed, the best kind of Christians were those who did good rather than simply sang hymns about it. Religion was a private matter and not up for a discussion, so those are the people with a modern worldview. The younger generation, by contrast, shared none of their parents' and grandparents' ethical framework. They knew little of Christian ways of understanding the world, but they were very interested indeed to talk about religion. There was a huge gulf of understanding between these two groups, the one formed by modernity and the other by postmodernity. Often, the only response of those over 50 years of age was to buy bigger bolts to protect themselves from the ravages of crime. So just, it just illustrates the gulf between these two worldviews and the difficulty that it causes. And our response shouldn't be to buy bigger bolts, surely, should it? It should be to try and understand and interpret the world for people, okay? Just an illustration. Now, okay, it's going to get easy now. So what has all this got to do with evangelism, okay? I, I can hear you asking, what is she on about? Um, well, what does evangelist mean? Well, you know, it means a, a herald, a bringer of good news. What have we understood it to mean in the second half of the 20th century? Do you think? Do, have we understood evangelist to mean the kind of person who's kind of bust in once every few years to do a big event? Is that what we've come to hear uh, by the term evangelism? Uh, I think that's true, actually, that that's what we think of as evangelist. I thought that's what an evangelist was, okay? Um, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. And I was in 1984 in Ashton Gate, the same day as Simon, apparently, listening to Billy Graham, and I was down on the pitch, you know. But still, you know, that's kind of what we've come to understand of as evangelists, haven't we? Um, now, the thing is, does this fit a modern worldview? Mm, maybe the kind of evangelist coming in, sharing the gospel, showing you its logic, expecting you to respond because it's so logical. Okay? Does it, does it 
fit a postmodern worldview? Well, I don't know. Um, would our postmodern friends go to an event like this and respond in the same way? Or would they say, well, it's true for them. You know, I'm not interested in it's true, actually. I want to know, does it work? And I can't tell because he's up there and I'm down here. Okay. Okay, so, yeah, I'm on my hobby horse now. I'm really sorry. Okay, so I'm, I'm talking about... Okay, so there are some really good things about this kind of preaching, itinerant, evangelist kind of person, okay? There are good things. They're highly visible, okay? Aren't they? Especially when they're in your town. They do huge events, okay? Uh, and they're gifted to do that. They have particular gifting, which God's obviously given them for a reason. They have been effective, probably, haven't they? Um, Although, I don't know, it's difficult to tell in the long term, isn't it, about these things. They're a gift to smaller churches, aren't they? Because, you know, smaller churches without the kind of manpower to do stuff like this, they're a real gift. And, of course, they can present the whole gospel at once, can't they? And some people would think that's a good thing, okay? But I'm not so sure, actually, particularly with our postmodern friends, you know, I don't think we can quite expect them to respond straight away. And the other thing is, you know, maybe it works if you've had a background in the gospel and you've heard it before, but if you're just hearing it cold, I don't know that it kind of works straight away, okay? So so what are the weaknesses, all right? Well, you know, we talked about the postmodern thing. Um... Few people are actually gifted in this way, are they? There aren't hundreds of people in local churches jumping up to do this kind of thing. I actually think it's disempowering for the church and discourages every member ministry. Please don't throw apples at me or anything, okay? I think it perpetuates the idea that evangelism is for the experts only. Okay? And the idea that evangelism is something you do every few years at an event... And then you tick the box, evangelism, and that's it. Okay. So, we think, maybe, evangelism is not our job. It's the job of the expert evangelist who comes into town once every few years. And I think this can lead to apathy amongst the church, or frustration. Apathy, it's not my job, leave it to the experts, or frustration from the people who are burdened in this way, thinking... I've got no place, you know, I, you know, nobody else seems bothered about it. What can I do? And lots of people like this go and form parachurch organisations or fall out of church altogether. So maybe we need to think about this in a different way, okay? How do we do evangelism in light of all this culture stuff? And how do we find a way to empower the local church? to do the work of evangelism that we talked about before. Okay, that's where we're going now. Um, oh gosh, it's quarter past eight, you haven't had coffee yet. Uh, shall I give you two minutes to get a coffee and then I'll carry on and there's some questions. Is that all right? <laughs> okay. Oh, sorry, John. <laughs> Is the kettle boiled? Shall I carry on? Okay. point now, which is, you know, maybe we should be thinking about evangelism as a lifestyle and not something that we just do at at events. Okay, and we'll just think a bit about what the Bible says about this. Um, Do you remember this? Back at the beginning, the Great Commission, the word, so it said, go and make disciples of all nations. That word go really means as you are going, as you are going about your ordinary everyday life, as you are going, make disciples, okay? Take your ordinary everyday life. This is uh, Romans 12 from the message. So it says, here's what I want you to do, God helping you. Take your everyday ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work and walking around life and place it before God as an offering. 
Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. Don't become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God and you'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. We need to do what he wants us to do and that's tell people about him in our ordinary lives. Uh, Here it is again. Go and tell them how much the Lord has done for you. Okay. Thank you. (laughs) So the thing is, you know that steps thing? Somebody thought that up. And um, if you've kind of got that on board, you'll be realising by now that we each have a role to play in getting people on those steps. It's not about somebody else doing it for us. It's about us getting to know people who aren't Christians and getting them on the step, that bottom step. Okay? People come to know God in a process. The major problem is that unsaved people don't know Christians. And that is the first stage in the process. Until people have gone through the process of knowing Christians, seeing God in them, recognising the relevance to themselves, and so on, most cannot come to a point of decision. So Simon's step thing, this is what this says, that people have to get to know Christians first. That's the first thing they need to do. Okay? So, um, what's this about then? Our circles of influence. What do I mean? Well, these are the people that God has placed near us. Okay, the people we already know that we can influence if we want to. Okay, and these include family, friends, neighbours, colleagues. Okay, people you already know. And you could be the only Christian that they know. Maybe God has put us in these situations knowing these people for this reason, for us to reach them. Okay? They may be people who would never darken the door of a church. And there are plenty of people like that in my life. Okay? Maybe he's put us there for this very reason. They're not going to come to us, but as we go, we're supposed to reach them. So our job is to point them towards God. Um, I've read and heard evangelism described as the task of interpreting God at work in people's lives, okay, for those who don't know about him. Okay? They can't see God at work in their lives unless we kind of point it out to them. Okay? So we need to be ready to explain it when we see it. So this lifestyle evangelism thing, the way we live matters a lot, okay? It matters a lot. We need to live a life of love. We want people to see the reality of our faith in the way we live, okay? We want to be salt and light and living letters because unless they see the reality in our lives, they're not going to be interested. Simon preached from this this morning, didn't he? Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Okay, you need to be wise. Okay, and make the most of every opportunity. We look for the opportunities to serve our friends. Okay, and then use words to tell them. Okay, why we are the way we are. Obviously, we listen first. And we always need to be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. Do this with a gentleness and respect, the end of the verse says. We've got to use words, okay, when people ask. And we want to share our story at that point, okay? And that's, we'll come on to that in the kind of end of our series. So we live a life in front of people, we love them, we look for opportunities to share our story with them, and we give them an answer when they ask. We're showing them it's true, it works, not it's true necessarily. 
okay. I just wanted to look at um, how Jesus describes this evangelism thing, this lifestyle evangelism thing to his disciples, do you remember? He said, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. This is after that big catch of fish Simon mentioned this morning. Okay? It's not about hunting down your prey with a great big gun, shooting them with the gospel, okay? And then putting a notch on your halo, okay? Because you've, you've given it to them. That's maybe the way we thought about it in the past, that kind of way of doing things, all right? But actually, we're supposed to be fishermen. Fishing is a nice gentle sport, isn't it? And, um, kind of, fed for fish, yeah. <coughs> um, hunting is based on confrontation, isn't it? You go and you shoot them. Okay? Fishing is based on attraction. Okay? You get the fish to nibble on your bait. Can you see where I'm going? And there are different kinds of bait available. When you hunt, pretty much one bullet for everything, okay? (laughs) No. With fishing, apparently, there are lots of different hooks and baits and all that kind of stuff you can use to attract different kind of fish, okay? And you get more than one chance when you're fishing. When you're, when you're hunting with your gun, all right, you take aim, you take your best shot, boom, and it's over, okay? Um, either you hit it or you don't. If you don't, they're scared off, all right? With fishing, you know, you get a couple of chances, don't you? They come round, they might nibble on your bait again, you kind of try and reel them in, apparently. I don't know much about fishing. Um, but, you know, you've got more than one chance. You keep trying to attract them. You don't scare them off, all right? Also, with this analogy, when we're thinking about this, a fish gets a choice, all right? It can choose to nibble the bait or not. The poor animal that you're hunting with your gun doesn't get a choice, does it? All right? But the fish gets a choice. Okay? And anyone can fish. All right? In hunting, you need to be really skilled at shooting, don't you? To, to hit your prey. Fishing, anybody can do it, really. Shush, will you? <laughs> I'll tell you a story now, and this is true, okay? I once shot a 12 ball shotgun. Can you believe that? I did, honestly. I was about 15, I'm getting to that. Um, uh, at a clay pigeon, you know, pool, that kind of thing. Do you know, it was really scary. Especially when we took the safety catch off. You know, and the kickback from this thing is amazing. Do you think I hit it? No, I missed. I was rubbish, actually. Once was enough, okay? Now, I've also been fishing, all right? I've dangled a a rod in a a lake. And do you know what? I caught something. It's like this. It was was like this. It was about that big, okay? I I was so proud. I caught something. And there is photographic evidence, actually, of this. Do you see what I'm getting at? Okay. Jesus asks us to be fishers of men. We're talking about people, actually, not fish, aren't we? Um, but he didn't ask us to be hunters. Okay. He wants us to share our faith in an attractive, intelligent, persistent, and respectful way. Okay. So I'm just going to give you, very briefly, because I'm over time already, a few pointers how to be effective at fishing for men, all right? And bearing in mind that the rest of the series is really all about this, okay? Okay, get to know the fish in your pond, okay? The pond, really, is your circle of influence that we talked about earlier. You need to get to know the people, in your circles of influence. This means getting to know them, listening to them, finding out all about them, okay? What do you need to know? Well, you need to know <coughs> their interests, their needs, and their hurts, like Simon was talking about this morning. We need to find common ground to build relationships, okay? 
We need to find out by listening their needs and hurts. And then we can begin to share how Jesus can meet those needs and hurts. You know, if we've shared a similar experience, and Simon was saying this morning, we need to be real and honest and be open, and that encourages them to speak. And we can share what Jesus can do. Talking about what people value gets people interested, okay? Grabs their attention. So just a few ideas. And the rest of the series is going to be about this, really. So the rest of the series, what are we going to talk about? What are we going to talk about? Relating, that's about, you know, how do we build relationships with people in order to, you know, to find out about them. Listening, okay, we're going to go on and on about this, all right? The importance of listening. We're going to talk about sharing our story. We're going to talk about understanding, understanding where people are in their journey. That's really important. Unless you know where people are, you can't help them along the next step. We're going to talk about explaining how do you explain the gospel when you get to that point. We're going to talk about the objections that people have. Okay, and we're going to talk about the role of the church in all of this. Okay. Now there are some questions. Like minus ten minutes. There we are. There are two sets of questions on your notes. All right. So you know maybe you could just stick around for five ten minutes and just chat about these. Okay. It's about who's in your circle of influence and what stops you spending time with your friends and what do you find difficult about all of this and how easy is it for you to share your story and how can we encourage each other. Okay. So you can talk about it now. Hey, so should we, should we pray before we go? Okay. Father, I just want to thank you um, for all that you've done in our lives, each one of us here. And I just pray that you would help us with these difficult ideas and concepts, Lord. But, but please, Lord, would you um, increase the love that we have in our hearts for those people we know who are lost? Would you give us your heart for the people that we know? And um, would you show us how best to tell people about you, how to listen and how to really be friends and to to give of ourselves, Lord, so that they might know you. I just pray that you would help us as we go and um, help us uh, as the church as we think about these things throughout this year, Lord. Amen.